Hello all and a warm welcome to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast coming to you from an at the moment sun-drenched North Wales where myself Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title tries to bring to you accounts for your listening of those cases that won't just roll off the top of your head they may be unfamiliar, obscure, often or even unbelievable but all of them are true from the darkest recesses of the UK and Ireland But it's me talking to myself like a simpleton without you guys though, the listeners who help keep the show moving forward. It's always wonderful having you joining me here as you have today, which I thank you kindly for doing so. And I do hope that as you have, then you and your nearest and dearest are all safe, you're all well and you're all good. So I start this time around by a reminder that some limited tickets for CrimeCon 2021 in London at the end of September are still available, where you can see myself, a whole load of your favourite show hosts and an incredible amount of distinguished guest authors and speakers from the world of true crime in attendance for the weekend. It promises to be a fabulous one too with so much going on and I'm so looking forward to meeting some of you guys there to talk true crime, put the world to rights to perhaps even have a beer with later on. Now those few remaining tickets have now slightly increased in price also, but you can still get yourself a 10% discount if you come to get them at checkout and you use the unique code ENTHUSIAST whilst you do so. I'm sure that it'll be worth it too, as if you let me know that you've used the code to book them, I'll make sure that there's a show goodie bag waiting for you at the event for doing so. Moving on from CrimeCon then, Cheers all for the fabulous feedback concerning our last jaunt out here, the episode The Airman and the Commander. Now if you've heard them, then aren't both of those unreal tales, proper instances of the horror that occurs when people snap, and as highlighted, mass shootings such as described aren't all that common here in the UK, those two certainly weren't anyway. One of my friends, an older guy, grew up in the North Wales area, quite close to Penmine Mara as it would happen, I'd never even bloody heard of the Red Gables massacre and I was proper surprised at that because something like that I don't think you'd forget if it happened on your doorstep whatever passage of time there was or is that just the true crime enthusiast in me speaking. Thanks also to both my returning and new Patreon supporters of the show with shout outs going out this time for Sam Collins, Katie Wilson, the fabulously named Polly Panic plus Jen Bottom, John Starr, who are just a little bit Gina Gigi and Holly Herkett who have each opted to annually support the show. It's so kind of you to do so folks, thank you so much. Now hopefully you've begun cracking on with getting through the 26 unreleased bonus episodes that being a supporter gets to you, with another one coming in just a couple of weeks. Now if titles such as Sanctuary or The Cannibal and the Cowboy, The Rotten Rose of Devon or New Year's Evil tickle parts of you, and you want to hear these tales and others for yourselves, then you don't need to go through some sort of bloody Krypton Factor type nonsense to do so. It's so simple, I'm surprised it hasn't got its own reality show. Quicker than Homer Simpson's stubble grows, you can be hearing these by heading over to Patreon and seeking out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there. It's got the same show logo and all that, but just remember that podcast suffix when you're looking, or you probably won't find it. Or you can just use the ever-present link that's in the episode show notes and that will take you right to it. I'm good like that. So before we get to the case in question for this time around, and it is a grim one this one, I warn you, 
there is just a short word from the episode sponsors who are once again better help. Now in the stressful times we are facing today, it's understandable that some of us are struggling with a few things and the thought of trying to deal with this whilst trying to still be the best that you can for those close to you, well it can be difficult and it can seem like a bit of a mountain. We all need help sometimes, so if there is, that's something that's stopping you from achieving any goals that you have or is just interfering generally with your happiness and well-being, then BetterHelp can certainly help you. BetterHelp assesses whatever needs that you have to get yourself back on track and matches you up with your very own licensed professional therapist from its vast array of skill set professionals, all of whom are specialised in all manner of issues from relationship and family conflicts right through to things such as depression and stress for professional counselling for you. Just to clarify there, this isn't self-help that's being advocated here. In less than 24 hours, you can be communicating with a therapist selected to best help you in a safe, convenient and confidential online environment with a service that's available for clients worldwide, a more affordable one than any traditional offline counselling, one that even offers financial aid available for the service if it's needed, and support functions that you may not even find that are available to you locally. You can get in touch with your counsellor whenever you want to, you can schedule weekly telephone or video sessions with them if you wish, and the responses that you'll get back from them, they'll all be timely and they'll all be thoughtful, and all without the uncomfortable feeling that goes with sitting around in a waiting room, because nobody likes that feeling, do they? It's so much better than that. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor, at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. This time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I've researched and brought you a case that really is a senseless one. It was disturbing to research and write up and it deals with something that I was absolutely horrified to learn just how familiar a crime it is here in the UK. I could have chosen from a number of names who have each done the same or a similar thing, but I've selected this one, and don't be surprised if a similar themed episode pops up for the next Patreon episode also. For our tale this time around, we're off back to the turn of the 21st century, and off down to the county of Northamptonshire in the East Midlands, for an episode that will largely be told from the point of view of a Northampton woman named Carol Quinn, who has quite the tale to recount. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving children and depictions of animal cruelty that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always folks, please use your discretion whilst you're listening in. Bearing that in mind, Please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at a case that I've entitled Annihilator. To begin, we're off back to the very start of this century, to the year 2000, which weirdly still sounds like it's in the future, doesn't it? And to Northampton, the county town of the authority with the same name. Some stats about Northampton and its county include that Northampton was once many years ago capital of England, a position that it held for nearly 200 years. Its market square is reportedly England's biggest. The county holds the Silverstone racetrack, 
Oldthorpe House, the family home of the Spencers and the last resting place of Princess Di is there. The heads of Robert Catesby and Thomas Percy, two of the gunpowder plotters of 1605, were put on display at Northampton. And notable people to hail from the area include DJs Joe Wiley and Whispering Bob Harris, former Rugby Union England international Ben Cohen, comedians Alan Carr and Tim Minchin, former Doctor Who and walking Easter Island statue Matt Smith, and very dear friends of mine and legendary Charlatans fans, Alona and Sean Murphy. And I look forward to seeing you soon, guys. My fave Northampton stat this time around, though, and keeping with our true crime theme-ish that we've developed over the past few episodes, is that in 1899, a rogue named Frederick John Phillips was scamming Northampton shop owners by telling them that they'd receive free tickets to the Barnum and Bailey Circus if they put up posters advertising the circus coming to town, taking an upfront deposit from them that he had no intention on refunding. When Phillips had fled, one shopkeeper, Jane Bottrill, alerted police officer Sergeant Hector McLeod about Phillips's crime, so the sergeant in turn then waved down a passing local tailor, William Herbert Harrison, one of the three people in Northampton to own a car at the time, a three and a half horsepower Benz. He commandeered it, and the sergeant and tailor sped after Frederick at what was an overwhelming speed of 15 miles per hour and eventually caught him a few miles outside of the town. Phillips was later prosecuted, caught because of Britain's first car chase. But it hardly puts the good old Duke boys to shame though, does it? In the present day, however, 72-year-old Northampton resident Carol Quinn each day gazes at a series of happy-looking photographs that she keeps on her mantelpiece, alongside a stuffed toy hedgehog. But doing so invokes a multitude of painful feelings within her, heartache, despair, loss and fear, and also brings back some of the most horrific memories there must be for a person to have, truly unimaginable ones that try as you or I might, you won't be able to, you wouldn't really want to. The photographs in question are of Carol's daughter Claire, and her children, Carol's two grandchildren, eight-year-old Kieran and seven-year-old Jade. Photographs are all that Carol has left of them. It was just after lunchtime on Monday, July the 17th, 2000, when Carol, at the time a civilian administrator with Northamptonshire Police, received a telephone call at home. She recalls, I'd finished doing all my cleaning around the house and was stood ironing in the kitchen when it came on the news that Sarah Payne's body had been found and I had a few tears, it was so awful, I was going all through it in my head thinking, if it happened to Jade, I don't know what I'd do. And then the phone rang, it was the secretary from the children's school, asking if I knew where they were, why they hadn't been attending classes, and why Claire couldn't be contacted. At that time, Carol had unusually not heard from her daughter for a week, despite her leaving several answering machine messages at the family home in Stockmead Road in the little billing area of Northampton, some 12 miles away. Carol continued, For a week, Harry and I had been unable to get hold of Claire either, despite leaving countless messages on her home and mobile phones. It wasn't normal. Claire and I spoke every day, often several times. She did care work, so I just thought she was at work a lot. 
I didn't take too much notice of it, but her cousin told me she thought Austin was playing up again. I know it sounds odd, but I decided that she and Philip must have had a big fallout and that they were trying to sort things out. So I kept out of it and thought, if she wants me, she knows where I am. The Austin in question was Claire's husband, 31-year-old Philip Austin, a forklift truck driver employed working night shifts at a local wholesale food retailer depot, who'd been married to Claire for seven years. It was actually their seventh wedding anniversary that day, and was the father of the couple's two children, eight-year-old Kieran and seven-year-old Jade. Though the marriage was still intact, it had been up and down like a fiddler's elbow over the years and Philip Austin disappearing for days on end after one row or another was nothing out of the ordinary. Indeed, so often had it occurred that Claire would refer to him when talking with those closest to her as Gulliver. But it wasn't like Claire not to be in touch with her mother and stepfather, Carol recalled. The last time I spoke to Claire was on Sunday, July the 9th. Harry and I had been to Hampton Court Palace the day before and she phoned to see if we'd enjoyed it. She and Philip were taking the kids to see Chicken Run at the cinema that afternoon. When I called her that evening to ask if the film had been good, Philip answered the phone. He sounded quiet and cold and told me, We didn't go to the cinema. Something cropped up. Claire's not here. Although the tone of Philip's voice made me feel uncomfortable, Harry and I assumed they must have had a row. Philip did have a temper, and the one thing they always argued over was money. Philip was dreadful with money, whereas Claire, who was an auxiliary nurse, was a real saver. For the next few days, I called morning and night and left messages on the answering machine, but Claire never called back. So for some eight days, Carol and her husband Harry had tried to get in touch with Claire, but nothing. Neighbours of the Austin family too, in Stockmead Road, were concerned also at the lack of activity at number 76. None of the family had been seen for days. The family's two poodle dogs, Dandy and Sooty, hadn't been seen being walked or even heard barking. And although Philip Austin's blue Proton car was nowhere to be seen, Claire's red Fiesta was parked in the lay-by outside the family home, where it had not moved for days. Neighbours had even checked the positioning of its tyres to see if the vehicle had moved overnight and had been returned, but it hadn't. At pains with what to do, concerned neighbours had eventually on the 17th of July contacted the Austin Children's School, Standons Barn Lower School in Northampton's Flaxwell Court, resulting in that lunchtime, the secretary of the school contacting Carol. Carol continued, she said she'd had a phone call from neighbours of Jade and Kieran who were a bit concerned and that Jade and Kieran hadn't been at school for a week with no absence form being requested and no one had called in. I said I didn't know what was happening, that I'd been trying to get in touch with them all week myself and wasn't able to. Then, like a mother's instinct, by God I knew something was wrong. Carol immediately called her husband Harry at the local flour mill, Haygates, where he worked as a senior engineer, and sensing the urgency in her voice, and he himself sharing the concern that his wife had over that week, he immediately returned home. 
Together, they then drove the 12 miles from their Bugbrook home to the neat private estate where Claire lived with her husband and two children. Arriving there at 4pm, they found the house secured with no signs of life, so using this spare key, they let themselves inside, Harry entering first. He had to physically push the door open due to the amount of post built up on the floor that was wedging the door from opening easily, and as he was registering this, he became aware of something else. The horrendous smell that was emanating from the house. One look into the kitchen was enough for Harry, and making his way back to the front door, he told his wife, Carol, don't go in there. Claire's done something to herself. But Carol pushed past him and walked in. She continued, I said, no, Claire hasn't done it. My stomach was going round and round and round. I didn't know what to expect, but it certainly wasn't that. What I saw is something I will never forget. Lying on the floor of the kitchen, the body of Carol's daughter, 31-year-old Claire Austin, lay dead in a pool of congealed blood. One look was enough to tell that Claire had obviously been dead for some time, and she died an extremely violent death. The later post-mortem was to determine that she'd been beaten repeatedly with a heavy blunt instrument, had been stabbed repeatedly in the chest and back, and had also been strangled. Beside her on the blood-slicked floor lay the body of Claire's apricot-coloured poodle, Dandy, its skull crushed in. Now finding a scene like that is already the stuff that nightmares are made of, isn't it? A mother finding her firstborn child like that, having lay like that for a week. It's simply unimaginable. Indeed, Carol recalls, I'll never forget the smell, and I'll never understand why I didn't sink to my knees and hug my daughter's body. But there was much, much worse to come. Carol continues, but it suddenly hit me. Where are the children? I said, no, no, please, not them. I ran upstairs and went into Kieran's room and he was lying face down on his bed. Then I ran into Jade's room and she was on the floor with one leg up against the wall, but her face was purple and her mouth open as if she was screaming. Both children had been strangled with ligatures, Kieran with a child's walking rein, his lifeless body left lying face down on his duvet, a teddy bear still on his pillow. Seven-year-old Jade, meanwhile, had been left lying dead on her bedroom floor, the belt from her own pink dressing gown still around her neck. Just try and take that in for a second. Carol went on. It was the worst moment of my life beyond anyone's worst nightmares. I have an imprint of finding their bodies on my mind all day, every day. Sometimes I think about it and I weep in the shower. There are times when I can't close my eyes without thinking of their tiny bodies left there like bags of rubbish. I can't sleep now without pills. If I don't get a pill, I keep seeing them. Claire and then Kieran and Jade. Claire, Kieran, Jade, over and over. And the smell, you get the smell in your nose and you can't get rid of it. It was a warm summer's afternoon. The bodies had been lying there for over a week. Poor, poor woman. 
I couldn't even begin to imagine it, for that's horror beyond belief, isn't it? Carol continues. We dialed 999 from a neighbour's house because we didn't want to touch anything in Claire's home for fear of destroying evidence. Instinct told me that Philip was the murderer, and I told the police so. That night, Harry and I formally identified the bodies at Kettering General Hospital, then two days later, we went to see them in the morgue. I stood holding my daughter's hand and promised I would get justice for them, whatever it cost. As a murder inquiry was immediately launched, the senior investigating officer, Detective Superintendent Chris Cross of Northamptonshire Police, told the media, These killings were truly horrific. The scene that met the parents was beyond belief. The daughter was lying dead with one of her dogs beside her, which was also dead. Officers who entered after them found appalling scenes in the two back bedrooms where the bodies of the children lay. The family's other dog, Sooty, was found in the utility room next to the tumble dryer, having met the same fate as the other pet. Of the family cat, Snoopy, there was no sign. It was to be several weeks before neighbours discovered the terrified animal, half-starved, having returned to the property. And at first, aside from the horror in the kitchen, the utility room and upstairs, there were no other signs of any other crime apparent in the house. There were no drugs lying about, for example, or any signs of any forced entry to the property. An officer on the inquiry, Detective Chief Inspector Andy Tennant, said later, at first, everything in the house looked normal, but then there were noticeable things like ornaments knocked over and a slipper lying on the stairs. Another slipper lay in between the main bedroom door and the landing, alongside a hooped earring belonging to Claire. Its counterpart was found in the downstairs toilet lay between the wall and a set of bathroom scales. Also scattered in the hallway by here were items such as papers and several books, that had formerly been stored on a corner shelving unit on the mid-landing, but the rest of the house showed no signs of ransacking or disturbance. Indeed, nothing was found to have been taken from the property. It indicated to police that a clear scuffle had taken place, predominantly in the hall downstairs that had culminated in the kitchen, but due to the signs of disturbance, it had most likely begun upstairs in the bedroom and spilled downstairs and they almost immediately had a very clear idea of the other person involved in the scuffle with Claire, for found in a pile of clothing in the main bedroom, folded up, were a pair of beige men's cargo pants that were heavily bloodstained, predominantly over the upper right thigh. Pants that belonged to Philip Austin. Superintendent Cross furthered to the media that the major line of inquiry now was to find 31-year-old Philip Austin, who was missing from the scene. As a description of Austin was issued, Superintendent Cross also gave details of the missing man's car, a blue Proton registration number G502PBU, and told the press that Austin was a forklift driver who was employed locally but who had not been at work for several days. He went on, It is vital that we speak to him as a matter of urgency. We know that on previous occasions he has left the family home for some days at a time, but has eventually returned. This has been as a result of family disagreements, 
and he's been known to travel extensively on these occasions. We are contacting family, friends, workmates and neighbours in an effort to trace him. He must now be aware of this investigation and I would appeal to him directly to contact the incident room at Northampton. It is vital that we speak to him as a matter of urgency. Had Philip Austin done the unthinkable? Claire Louise Golden, as she was formerly known, had met Philip Austin in a Northampton pub almost 10 years earlier in 1991 whilst on a night out with girlfriends. The following day, she'd excitedly told her mother how the previous evening she'd met a man who'd bought her a rose and after he had asked for her phone number, she'd arranged to see him again. Carol recalled later. Within weeks, she brought Philip home to meet us and he seemed so quiet and unassuming. We could tell that he was a hard worker, but that he was never going to set the world on fire. If I'm honest, we'd always hoped Claire would meet someone with a profession and more ambition, but as long as she was happy, and she was, then we supported her. At that stage, there wasn't anything to concern us about Philip, other than that he was useless with money. He would frequently overspend and then disappear in high dudgeon, which drove Claire mad. But there was no indication that Philip might have a violent side. Only shortly after them getting together, Claire fell pregnant and the couple's first child, Kieran Michael Austin, was born on the 19th of February 1992. For their first grandchild, the excited grandparents Carol and Harry went out and bought a video camera to record as much as they could of Claire's firstborn's first days. Carol recalls fondly. Kieran was our first grandchild, and when Philip called, elated to say that we had a grandson, Harry and I dashed to the hospital. I remember gazing at this little bundle and whispering to Claire, My word, aren't you a clever girl? He's gorgeous. Now Kieran found himself in the big brother role just over a year later, and on the 22nd of April 1993, his sister Jade was born, and his grandparents had the video camera out once again to film him meeting his baby sister for the very first time. And it's fair to say that the bond between the two siblings was instantaneous, which only strengthened as the children aged, Kieran being especially protective of his younger sister. Carol continues. As he grew, Kieran never stopped talking. He was always asking questions, and he loved his mum, but he would always look out for his sister. He also never stopped eating. Whenever you saw Kieran, it was, Nanny, I'm hungry. Whereas Kieran was inquisitive and a real live wire, however, Jade was shy and sensitive. With her long, straight silver blonde hair, her box fringe, and her toothy grin, she looked the picture of innocence. Jade was my husband's little princess. She could do nothing wrong in his eyes. And if Claire ever phoned to say Jade has been a right mare today, Harry would joke and say he didn't believe it possible. She was very quiet, but full of mischief. She cooked with her nanny, made cakes and tarts, and she used to love going through my jewellery box. She used to ask me, who bought you this? Did Grandad buy you this? Now the case features on a couple of documentaries that are used for research and that links to are here in the episode show notes under the references heading. And when you finish up here, if you check them out, 
Listen to Carol and her husband Harry discussing their grandchildren. It's clear as day that they did nothing but dote on them. Indeed, Carol says, struggling to contain her emotions, The children were just gorgeous. We loved taking them to the cinema to see films like Toy Story and for days out at Legoland in Windsor and we always took them to see a pantomime at Christmas. Her husband Harry, meanwhile, added, They were pretty ordinary kids, really. They were ordinary, fun-loving kids. There wasn't anything extraordinary about them, except that we loved them to death. Poor people. It proper got me, that did, I tell you. So, with two young children, and both Claire and Philip being only in their early 20s themselves, by early 1993, the couple had worked hard enough to be able to put down a deposit on a house in Northampton, number 76 Stockmead Road. And with a young family to support, Philip Austin took a job at first working in a local factory, which gave way to then becoming a forklift truck operator in the local warehouse of a supermarket chain. And at first, things were fine. The young couple had even married in a low-key ceremony three months after Jade had been born on the 17th of July 1993. But the wedding ceremony was a good indicator of the differences that there were between Philip and Claire. For whereas Claire, who was described as sensible, fun-loving and fiercely loyal, was popular and had scores of friends, Philip was completely the opposite. The only child of lorry driver David Austin and his care assistant wife Linda, Philip Jeffrey Austin had been born on Valentine's Day 1969 and had remained a reserved child as he grew, certainly not one to mix and one content with always being on the sidelines of things. Regardless, he was close to his aunt and uncle Roger and Maureen Taylor and used to spend countless times with them and their children, growing up into a quiet, somewhat unremarkable man. He met Claire when he was 22 and they had fallen pregnant only shortly after meeting but following Kieran's christening, for reasons undetermined, Austin had completely cut his own family off through a letter that he sent to them, refusing to visit or even speak to any of them any longer for reasons, as I said, that cannot be established. It's unclear even as to whether his family had ever met Jade. As a result then, Austin had just two guests at his own wedding and his best man was actually a friend of Claire's that had agreed to step in at the last minute when it became apparent that Austin was not able to provide one of his own. His uncomfortableness and social awkwardness were apparent by the forced, very short speech that he made at his own wedding to his new bride and guests which he had to be coaxed very firmly to do so. Now it was also following the couple's wedding and Jade's birth that Austin began to demonstrate what would become a recurring trait with him, bizarre and frivolous spending, usually after a row. Instances of this being bad with money included Austin blowing £100 on a pair of trainers he never then wore, which would be expensive enough to buy now, but more so back in the 90s, buying a complete set of golf clubs, even though he didn't play golf, and buying a set of weights that he never even picked up. It was polar opposite behaviour to that of the astute Claire, who was good at saving and indeed was somewhat thrifty. Then, as soon as Claire would find out about the spending, according to Carol, Austin would demonstrate what also became a trait for him. He would place some clothes into a carrier bag and I quote, 
go away for days, binge drinking. Eventually, he would assume that his wife would welcome him back with open arms, which Claire often did, but only after reporting him as missing to police, who then found him and brought him home. So often did this occur, following rows over Austin's careless spending, that Claire even referred to him as Gulliver when discussing the latest episodes with friends and family. More than once, Claire and the children had stayed with Carol and Harry, both of whom had told Claire on occasions to divorce Philip. Carol had even once taken Claire to a Northampton solicitor to try and get the ball rolling. And each time, Claire would ultimately refuse, saying that she didn't want her children having a broken home because despite his faults, she considered Philip Austin to be a loving and good dad and what the kids needed. And on the surface, he was. Yet Carol and Harry came to learn that although he never displayed any violence towards Claire, Austin did have somewhat of a temper that would manifest itself towards the children, particularly Kieran. Carol described later. My grandchildren were sitting in our kitchen at our house one day when Kieran did something and Jade looked at him and said, Don't do that or you'll get a good hiding, won't he nanny? I was a bit taken aback and explained that good hidings weren't something that we did in our house. Well, daddy gives them, Jade went on, before telling me something very alarming, that their father had started to put his hands around their throats if they'd been naughty. We don't like it when daddy does that, they'd said. It concerned me greatly and I spoke to Claire about it the following day. She was shocked. She said she hadn't known anything of this aggression from Philip towards the children, but that she would see that it never happened again. Now, seeing several home videos that are available of the Austin family, it becomes apparent, perhaps okay with the benefit of hindsight, that Austin related poorly towards his children, particularly Kieran. Several of these videos show on the surface what could appear to be simple play between father and child, but then you see how boisterous he is towards them, how heavy-handed through his play Austin was. One particular video shows him hanging Kieran upside down by his feet during a game, and the toddler cries immediately after being put down. There are others in which, again during play, he pushes the toddler over. He's just heavy-handed with his son. Claire herself had reportedly witnessed Austin strike Kieran so hard that it had knocked him off his feet and had very clearly threatened him that if it ever happened again, he was out on his ear, and that was it for the couple. In response to this, Austin and Claire went to a series of sessions with Relate for marriage counselling, and he also agreed to attend both an anger management course and a series of sessions with the children's charity NSPCC in an effort to learn proper control of his temper, particularly in relation to his son. Although he didn't complete either course, on the surface, both appeared to work. On the surface. By 1999, with both children now attending Standons Barn Lower School, which they loved and were described by the head Sue Stokes as being popular children at, Claire decided to go back to work and began working for Northamptonshire County Council as a part-time home help employed by social services. It was to be the first in a series of changes for Claire. Around this time, she also passed a driving test, obtaining a red Ford Fiesta car. She developed a new circle of friends through her work, and even began attending Weight Watchers, 
Her dedication to improving herself no doubt spurred on by the constant insults from Austin, who would be littler about her weight. And Claire began doing well at it, often being named Slimmer of the Month, whereas Austin began to look like if he fell down the stairs, it would sound like EastEnders finishing. With Claire now working a series of shifts to help with the family income, care for the children was often left solely to Austin. Former neighbour June Smith recalls, We heard him shouting at the children a lot, but we just put this down to his job working nights, and that he was trying to sleep during the day. But aside from this, the couple's relationship had overall seemed to have improved, Carol recalls. Publicly, Philip was the same as ever, and was always very involved with the children. They'd have days out at weekends like any family. I even heard Philip talking to our local vicar at my aunt's 100th birthday party about the possibility of him and Claire renewing their vows. In the first half of 2000, Claire and Philip seemed happy and any money issues with Philip appeared to be in the past. They even went on holiday to the Canary Islands that June. Harry and I picked them up from the airport and they'd had such a fantastic time that within a fortnight Claire had booked a holiday for the following summer to Portugal. It was a holiday that the Austins were never to take however and the fantastic time is not recalled by everyone who went on that holiday. The Austins had gone to Fuerteventura with Claire's cousin and her partner, Robert Alderton, who told later of a bizarre incident where he'd answered a knock at the hotel door one evening to find an angry-looking Philip Austin stood on the other side, who then began remonstrating with him about the cost of the trip, why they'd chosen there, particular excursions they'd been on, all sorts, though the main impression Robert was left with was that Austin resented his control of the holiday, if you like and was spoiling for a fight. At one point, Austin had even physically squared up to Robert, who not wishing to make a scene, did manage to calm the situation down and got him to leave. But it had somewhat tarnished the holiday for everyone. Just three weeks after returning from this holiday, on what was to be the last time Carol saw her daughter alone, Thursday, July the 6th, 2000, the pair had enjoyed a shopping trip and lunch together as usual. Carol went on. Claire was chattering away about holidays then. She told me they were hoping to splash out on a last minute break in a few weeks time. I suggested to her that it might be a good idea just to save their money, knowing what Philip could be like if they overspent. Mum, don't worry, we've got plenty of savings and we're getting on better than ever, she reassured me. Yet unbeknown to me, Claire had confided in my niece that Philip had been up to his old tricks again, wasting money and leaving them short. Now what he'd wasted money on this time was unestablished, but one thing he'd certainly bought was the family tickets to go and see the film Chicken Run for a family outing to the Virgin Cinema at Northampton Sixfields for that upcoming Sunday. However, that rainy Sunday afternoon, Neighbours saw Kieran and Jade in the back garden of the family's Stockmead Road home, and when asked why they were outside in the rain, the children told them they didn't want to go inside the house because their father was in a bad mood. Earlier that morning, he'd shouted at Kieran over some trivial point over his homework, which had led to a row developing between him and Claire, and Austin storming up to the bathroom, where he stayed for most of the day. Claire had been unable to use the tickets herself, 
so she and the children had missed out due to Austin sulking, and when Carol had telephoned that evening to see how they'd enjoyed the film, Austin had uncharacteristically answered and said that they'd not gone. Carol, as we said earlier, assumed from his manner that the couple had had some form of argument, but did not speak to her daughter. She never was to again either. Now the following morning, Monday the 10th of July, Austin had taken the children to school as usual, and that morning also, Claire had telephoned her cousin for a bit of a vent, saying how upset she was because Austin had cancelled the outing at the last minute, disappointing the children. He was not right and was taking it out on her and the children, she'd claimed. That telephone call was the last time that Claire Austin had spoken to anyone she'd not been seen or spoken to since that morning. Kieran and Jade, meanwhile, had not been seen since they'd been collected from school that Monday afternoon by their father, who himself was also missing, as he hadn't been found as the rest of his family had in the most horrific, unimaginable circumstances there is, eight days later. It meant that Philip Austin was now the primary person of interest in his family's murder, and he had a week's head start on detectives, as the later post-mortems were to establish that Claire, Kieran and Jade had been dead for at least seven days before they were discovered. The day after the discovery of the bodies, day two of the inquiry, a check on Philip Austin's bank accounts had revealed a hive of activity in the week leading up to the discovery, including purchases from a DIY store in Northampton, cash withdrawals moving increasingly northwards from the Northampton area in Blackpool, Scarborough and Whitley Bay, which corresponded with guesthouse stays that his credit card had paid for in these. But wherever Austin was at that moment, he wasn't in his missing Proton car because a woman in the Northampton area had telephoned police the same day after seeing the appeal to report that the vehicle in question had been parked directly outside her terraced house for the previous seven days. Police were immediately around there and sure enough, Austin's Blue Proton, registration number G502PBU, was parked outside the woman's home. The vehicle was seized and taken for a full forensic examination, which was to yield several items that helped police develop not only a way for them to possibly trace Philip Austin, but also that would ultimately help establish the chain of events that had led to the deaths of Claire, Kieran and Jade. Discovered in the vehicle was a paper bag containing the remains of a large McDonald's takeout meal, a copy of Auto Trader magazine found to have several vehicles for sale in the Northampton area circled, and in a plastic carrier bag, a rubber-headed mallet, the type used for securing camping tent pegs. The handle of the mallet was significantly bent, and its head, which was enclosed in cling film, was heavily bloodstained. Now a check on the vehicles that were found ringed in the Auto Trader revealed that one of these, a silver Ford Granada, registration number F622UHK, had been purchased from a local car dealer on the previous Monday morning, the last day that Claire and the children were known to be alive, by Philip Austin. When the dealer, Mark Totten, was spoken to, he recalled that Austin had seemed perfectly fine when buying the car, although thinking back, he hadn't asked him anything about the vehicle's specifications, I did not even try to haggle the price down any, 
he'd simply paid the asking price in cash, as though he was in a hurry. Police nationwide were now on full alert for any sightings of this vehicle, and a watch on all airports and ferry terminals was also made, thinking that the wanted man, now the bodies of his wife and children had been discovered, would know police were now searching for him and would attempt to flee the country. And two days later, they were to find him. A member of the public walking down remote Ashes Lane in the Cumbrian market town of Kendall telephoned police after spotting a silver Ford Granada parked up in a lay-by there with a man in the back seat that she believed was acting suspiciously. A few moments later, police officer Sean Onions responded to this report and sure enough, discovered exactly where the witness had described the vehicle in question was still parked up. Sat in the back seat was a young man who it became immediately apparent had cut his own wrists and was bleeding quite heavily. So as PC Onions immediately requested medical assistance and began to give the injured man first aid, finding the wounds to be only superficial, half-hearted ones, he asked him who he was, to which the man emotionlessly replied, You'll know me. I'm the man who's killed his wife and family. Not the answer you'd be expecting that, is it? PC Onions was to get little more out of the man as well all through accompanying him to hospital for treatment and even after arresting him when he was discharged from hospital, recalling Austin being, for of course that's who we're talking about here, I quote, emotionless, just gazing off into the distance. The lights were on, but no one was home. When it was established through a check of the VRN of the Ford Granada and documents found in Austin's possession that this was indeed Northamptonshire's most wanted, Detectives in the Northampton Incident Room were contacted and he was later that evening flown back down to the Northampton area where he was met by detectives and taken into custody. Once back at Northamptonshire Police Headquarters at Wotton Park, under caution, Austin almost immediately, in a calm, collected, undistressed manner, gave a full account of events from the previous 10 days. The interview made for disturbing listening and the account Austin gave can be broken down as follows. Austin claimed that the previous Sunday, the 9th of July, he and Claire had rowed. He wasn't to reveal what it was exactly that they'd rowed about, but it's safe to say that it was concerning either his attitude towards the children or his spending, and he'd brooded about it for the rest of the day, cancelling the planned cinema trip. The following day, a normal Monday, Claire had got the children up for school as routine, they'd breakfasted and Austin had taken them to school. There are conflicting reports as to whether he'd worked the previous evening and had come off nights that morning or had been on a day off, but what was confirmed was that he dropped the children off at Standons Barn Lower School as routine. However, he hadn't gone home as was normal following this, he'd instead stopped at a newsagent where he'd bought a local newspaper and a copy of Auto Trader, and had then taken himself to a nearby McDonald's for breakfast. After spending some time looking through the Auto Trader and circling a selection of vehicles for sale in the local area, Austin had then visited Paradise Massage Parlour in Northampton, where he had engaged in sex with a sex worker there, something he claimed that he wasn't in the habit of doing and had never done so before, it was just something that he fancied that morning. After he'd left here, 
he'd visited the former focused DIY store just off Billingbrook Road, where he'd purchased a rubber mallet, claiming to police that he'd bought this, intending to do some patio work in the back garden of number 76. He had then arrived home late that morning, and had found Claire upstairs in the couple's bedroom, and who Austin claimed immediately began berating him. Now, there are a variety of reasons bandied around over what the supposed row had been triggered by, including because of where Austin had been that morning, or a discussion over the planned holiday that Claire had wanted the couple to spend their savings on, whereas Austin had wanted to use the money to pay for an operation to help cure his snoring that had rapidly developed into a row. He was later to describe it as, She started hassling me and arguing and that. I just turned on her. Austin claimed that during the row, a red mist had descended upon him, and he'd taken a swing at Claire, forgetting that he still held the mallet in his hand. The blow he claimed had caught her on the arm, and a full-on fight began. Now, forensic evidence was indeed to show that there'd been a desperate struggle that began in that bedroom, and had spilled downstairs, evidenced by the earring found on the landing, the placing of Claire's slippers, and the disturbance of books and papers from the landing corner unit that had led down to the front door, which Claire had managed to reach, attempting to flee from her husband, who was striking at her with a mallet. Whether Claire had managed to open the front door or not was unascertained, but if she had, Austin had most likely caught up with her by there and slammed it shut, leaving Claire to attempt to seek refuge in the downstairs toilet, where she was attacked again, evidenced by the other earring that was found on the floor in it. Desperately fighting her husband off, she'd fled towards the kitchen, where she was either leapt on from behind by Austin, or she'd slipped and he was upon her. And then the bloodshed really began. Not content with simply striking his wife with a mallet, so hard and so often enough that the later post-mortem was to discover had fractured his skull and her shoulder, as she lay on the kitchen floor, gravely injured, Austin had grabbed a carving knife and stabbed his wife repeatedly in the chest and back, so furiously that the knife had broken off at the handle. So he grabbed another one and continued stabbing her. He had even then grabbed one of his wife's bras from the kitchen laundry basket and used that to throttle her, leaving her lying on the blue-tiled floor in a rapidly spreading pool of blood. That's horror enough, right, isn't it? And however it may sound it, however he tried dressing it up, this was no loss of control or red mist. That's a right shamble of bollocks to say that. He was making measured decisions constantly through it. Buying a mallet, choosing another knife when the one he was using broke, even selecting a bra to strangle Claire with. And his next act was another example of this. Austin then used the mallet to batter to death the family's two dogs, Sooty and Dandy, with such fury that their skulls were crushed, Dandy being left by a mistress, while Sooty was pursued to the utility room, where the poor creature cowered before being callously killed by its owner. It was then left wedged by the side of the tumble dryer. Claire and Dandy, meanwhile, were then dragged from where they were initially killed in the kitchen, to a position where they could not be seen through the back kitchen window, nor from anyone looking through the front door letterbox, which gave a clear line of sight into the kitchen. Austin then went upstairs and changed out of his bloodstained clothing, before leaving the house, 
complete with a mallet he just bought, by now significantly bent at its stem from the horror that it had just been used for, and driving to Claire's workplace, where he told her boss that she would not be in work later that day, indeed for a few days, as she had injured her back whilst moving some furniture that morning. Leaving here, he then went and left his blue Proton vehicle parked in a side street nearby to the location of the vehicle he adopted to buy, a silver Ford Granada, which he made his way on foot for and paid for in cash, no questions. By this time, it was almost time to collect the children from school. Austin claimed that he collected Kieran and Jade as normal in his replacement car and considered dropping them at their grandparents, but then decided against this. Instead of taking them home, he had driven them around the country for a period of seven to eight hours, even as far across as the east coast of the UK. They had stopped for a sleep for a short period, he claimed, and when the children claimed later that evening that they were hungry, he bought them a large McDonald's drive through meal. Some accounts claim it was a supper of fish and chips. Whatever it was, Austin had then laced the children's drinks with a hefty dose of Nitol, a herbal medicinal product, and had continued driving around until both children were asleep. When they were, he'd driven back to 76 Stockmead Road, and had one by one carried the children into the house and put them straight to bed. By this point, he claimed, having a complete memory loss as to what he'd done earlier in the day. It was only as he was putting Jade into bed, Austin claimed, that she'd woken up and asked for a drink of water, which he told her he would fetch for her. When he went downstairs to get this, Austin claimed he was confronted with the carnage of his dead wife and dead dog in the kitchen, and the flashbacks from that morning came back with a bang, hitting him like a wrecking ball. Austin claimed that it was this that had triggered his next actions. He was to say emotionlessly to detectives, who were listening incredulously, that his mind had repressed all memory of the killings beforehand, and seeing the body before him, he knew the children would ask about their mother or the dogs, claiming calmly, It sort of came to me that I'd killed her, so I went upstairs and killed my children. Now, however abhorrent and the spur of the moment actions of a pure madman this may sound to you and I, because who does that, I ask you? Former Detective Chief Inspector Andy Tennant, who'd worked on the inquiry, says that nothing was further from the truth. He said years later, At that point, the only way forward he could see was to kill the children. This isn't a red mist decision, this isn't a loss of temper, this is a reasoned decision that that man has made that he is going to murder both of his children. I would have said the decision was made long before that moment, wouldn't you? It's unclear in which order Austin then strangled his children, but horrifically, even despite him having sedated both beforehand, there was evidence to suggest that each of them had struggled as he did so. Jade had been strangled with her own dressing gown belt after possibly trying to flee, being found left on her bedroom floor, whilst Kieran lay face down on his bed, having been garroted with a set of toddler reins. But both children were found to have small grazes underneath their chins, possibly indicating that they'd used their fingers to desperately try to remove the ligatures from around their necks. Though ultimately, neither child could offer anything except futile resistance 
against a fully grown man. Horrendous that, isn't it? Absolutely heartbreaking. This is at the hands of their own father. By that point, most likely already having packed a bag, Austin then fled the house, leaving his annihilated family to be discovered by Carol and Harry a week later. There are conflicting reports about what he took with him in monetary value, with some accounts claiming that earlier that morning, Austin had withdrawn some £700 from his bank account, whilst others claim he had previously, secretly, obtained a banking loan of £5,000, which he had to fall back on. Over the next week, Austin moved steadily north, heading first to a Blackpool guest house, before moving across to Scarborough for a few days, and then further north again, up to Whitley Bay in North Tyneside, all movements that could be supported by corresponding transactions from Austin's bank accounts. Whilst travelling, he'd kept a general low profile, paying his bills promptly and in full, but had made no real attempt to hide, there was no attempt to flee the country or anything. He'd even been happy enough to visit the pub of an evening for a few pints, head out for a bite to eat, nip out to shops to buy alcohol, porn, even ice cream. Just like a bloke on holiday, isn't it? Not a man who days before had annihilated his family. Isn't that unreal? Absolutely despicable, isn't it? Then, some seven days after the murders, Carol and Harry had made the horrific discovery at Stockmead Road, and Austin's crime was discovered, although it was more than likely eclipsed on the news that day, because as we heard at the start of the episode, it was the very same day that the body of missing Sarah Payne had been discovered, and the eyes of the UK were likely there. It's a case that I'm sure needs no introduction really, that one is, but as a bit of an aside, it is one that I've been considering covering here on The Enthusiast at a future date. If it's something you'd be interested in hearing, then please let me know. Let me know the feelings about it. But it'd been reported, police were aware, and Austin knew that now he would be the subject of a manhunt as the prime suspect in his family's annihilation. With no clear plan of what to do next, as we've said, not having left the country and knowing now that a watch would be on for him at any exit points from the UK, Austin was to claim that he drove around aimlessly until he found himself up in Cumbria, where he had parked up in a remote lane and attempted to take his own life by slitting his wrists. However, the wounds he'd inflicted were found to be just superficial ones, as we've said, as he was later discharged from hospital after receiving minor medical attention. And shortly after he'd done this, PC Onions had found him following a call from a member of the public, and Austin had confessed to him almost immediately as to what he had done. Throughout the whole account, Austin had remained calm and collected, emotionless, even when describing killing his own children. At the end of the interview, interviewing officers had asked Austin how he felt about what he'd done. After a moment's thought, he simply said, well, I'm not proud. That was the most police ever got out of him about how he felt. Yes, just think about that for a moment. I'm not proud. Fucking hell is all I can say. On Monday the 24th of July 2000, Philip Jeffrey Austin appeared at Northampton Magistrates Court charged with the murders of his wife Claire 
and his two children, Kieran and Jade, to which he didn't issue a plea. He was remanded in further custody awaiting future court appearances, and reportedly, during the remand period, his appointed defence counsel was attempting to go about the diminished responsibility route for his upcoming trial. But no psychiatrist was willing to advocate this, the clear prior planning all too apparent to even make such a defence unable to hold any water, because it was clear as day that diminished responsibility was bollocks, wasn't it? Whilst Austin was now arrested, charged and on remand then, the nightmare went on for Carol, Harry and Claire's brother Matthew. Carol continues, Those first few weeks, if I managed to sleep at all, I'd wake up screaming and Harry would have to hold me to stop me kicking and punching. We had to wait a month to bury Claire and the children. I bought little outfits for the children to wear in their coffins and a top for Claire which she'd pointed out to me on that last shopping trip together. Then there was the heartbreaking business of clearing out Claire's house and getting rid of the children's toys and clothes. I kept a cuddly hedgehog of Kieran's because he'd once asked me to look after it for him and it sits by a photo of him in my house. Every Christmas we hang a little cardboard angel that Jade made at school on the tree. I can't bear to light the candles that Claire bought me as a gift from her last holiday. There are no words, are there? No words. No words whatsoever. Austin's own family too, whom he'd cut off many years before, were also to be affected. Nobody comes through this case unscarred. How could you? Whilst on remand, for reasons unknown, he had contacted his Aunt Maureen and Uncle Roger for the first time in almost eight years and had requested a visit from them. After some soul-searching, they'd gone along to see their nephew, if anything, because you'd just want to ask someone why, why on earth, wouldn't you? But try as they might, the closest Austin was to come to offering any kind of reasoning for such carnage when asked why was a half-hearted attempt to lay the blame in his own upbringing, accusing his father David of being violent towards him and traumatising him to the extent where any paternal feelings he should have had were simply not there. Both Maureen and Roger could see right through this though, knowing David was not a disciplinarian, and as I said, it was only a half-hearted attempt by Austin to explain himself off anyway. In fact, Austin was the most animated during the whole visit when he brought up the subject of the status of his own possessions from the marital home, what had happened to his CDs and various bits of tat that belonged to him, prompting Roger to angrily thump the table and say to Austin, angrily and exasperatedly, you've more bloody important things to be worried about. With that, both of them left in tears, and indeed, eh, you couldn't make it up, could you? Eight months after the murders, on Thursday, March the 22nd, 2001, Philip Austin appeared at Northampton Crown Court, where he initially pleaded not guilty to the murders on the grounds of diminished responsibility, but on the opening day of the trial, had dropped that defence and changed his plea to guilty. Richard Latham QC, prosecuting, told the court that the couple had mountain debts, and Mrs Austin nicknamed her husband Gulliver, because whenever they argued, he would leave the family home for a number of days. He said between March and April before she died, the couple took out a second mortgage on their home to clear their debts, 
but it, I quote, only relieved the financial problems and did not solve the problems within the marriage. Arguments about money came to a head while the children were at school on July 10th of the previous year when the defendant had struck his wife over the head with a mallet before she was strangled and stabbed to death in the kitchen. Her husband had then killed the family's poodles. Describing the murder scene, Mr Latham said, Claire had severe bruising to her head, face, right shoulder and hands. He tied the ligature around her neck and she had stab wounds to her chest. Mr Latham said Austin used two kitchen knives to stab his wife because the first one broke off at the handle as he was pushing it into her chest. He said, Within the chest was a knife blade which was broken off of the handle. It was 22 and a half centimetres long. The handle was found lying alongside the deceased and there was another bloodstained knife also lying on the floor which was possibly used after the first one broke during the attack. All the stab wounds were inflicted as she lay on her back on the floor. The stab wounds caused her death. Within a few hours of killing Claire, Mr Latham added, Austin had killed his children, having collected them from school, driven them around for hours, drugged them, and had then returned home and garroted them, Jade with her own pink dressing gown belt, Kieran with a child's walking ring. Anthony Palmer QC, defending, could say little in mitigation, but said that Austin was feeling under an enormous amount of stress at the time of the murders, because he worked nights and his wife worked days which meant he also became the children's carer during the day, and he couldn't cope. Mr Palmer said, Austin worked as much overtime as possible to boost the family income, but he was constantly short of sleep and became irritable with the children. There were days when the defendant left home for periods of time in order to relieve the stress that he felt. In June last year, when they were on holiday, they slept apart, and in the months before killing Claire, he slept downstairs. A normal relationship had broken down. Mr Palmer said the final straw for Austin came when after returning from a holiday abroad, Claire urged Austin to phone other travel agents with a view to booking another holiday. Mr Palmer continued, He was waiting for news about an operation on his nose for a problem with his snoring, which is one of the reasons why he slept downstairs but she wanted a holiday despite waiting for notification about whether an operation could be achieved. She was insistent about the holiday and he wanted an operation on his nose. It was the fact of the holiday and the stress from the holiday that caused a loss of control and then violence began. He didn't know what caused him to kill the children. In Tencent in Austin, who remained emotionless and said nothing, Presiding Mr Justice Potts said, I cannot find words to describe this case. It is beyond the bounds of belief that a father can kill his wife and children within a few hours of each other. I have to say that the way they were killed leaves me at a loss for words. Your mental state has been examined and considered by at least four highly experienced psychiatrists and they have all concluded that you are not suffering from abnormality of mind such as to diminish responsibility for your actions. You are not mentally ill. I take into account what Mr Palmer has said as to the stress that you are suffering but I have to say that is no explanation for what you did. 
Austin was then sentenced to three counts of life imprisonment, which were to run concurrently, and was originally sentenced to serve a minimum tariff of 17 years. However, the prosecution, I did, and I'm sure you guys do too, thought this far too lenient, an absolute disgrace in fact, and appealed the sentence. And the then Home Secretary, David Blunkett, was ultimately to increase the minimum term Austin was to serve to 20 years. For the five lives he took that day in such horror, that still works out at just four years each though. Following his conviction, Claire's family attempted to pick up the pieces of the lives that Austin had destroyed, but the toll his actions had on each was destructive indeed, to say the least. Unsurprisingly, both Carol and Harry attended counselling sessions for a long period following their discovery that summer's day, and Claire's brother Matthew was left so disturbed by the crimes that he was to suffer a series of severe panic attacks and was to be on antidepressant medication for years afterwards. Carol and Harry were also to join an organisation called NEVER, the Northeast Victims Association, a group that offers advice, counselling and support to families who were bereaved through murder and manslaughter, to try and help them cope, which was the support that the family needed, being left in limbo by the senseless killings. Speaking years after Austin's sentencing, Carol said, Austin has never contacted us since the sentencing. I don't know how he can close his eyes at night and sleep. I struggle to close mine because all I can see when I do is the bodies of my daughter and grandchildren. I always wonder whether Claire called for me when he was attacking her, whether the children called for their mummy as the father strangled them. Harry added, He's a monster. To be able to do what he's done and still live with himself, he went on a tour after slaughtering his family. You must have no soul at all to be able to do that. We'll never make any sense of it. We've talked about it for hours. Round and round and round we talk about it. We try to make some sense of it. There isn't any. There isn't any sense to it. And there doesn't seem to be, does there? Over the years, Austin has never offered any kind of explanation for his crimes beyond saying... She started hassling me and arguing and that. I just turned on her. When he was asked directly by police why he'd murdered Claire. Or, it sort of came to me that I'd killed her, so I went upstairs and killed my children. When asked why he'd killed his children as well. He had no previous criminal convictions, and there was no evidence he'd been suffering from any psychological problems, police said. And even though he visited a massage parlour on the day of the killings, this was no evidence of a hidden life. Indeed, it seems to have been the only time that he ever went to one. And yet, however his actions that day must seem of someone not in their right mind, because, as I said before, who does that to their family? To an extent, Austin had planned the crime. Taking out a secretive loan to fund his escape, going out and preparing to buy a car, knowing beforehand you would be fleeing later and not wanting to be discovered. Killing the two dogs so that the barking would not alert neighbours and therefore the bodies being discovered sooner, dragging the bodies out of sight in the kitchen so they couldn't be seen from either the back or the front door, and deliberately driving your children around the country, deliberately drugging them so you can get them home and then strangle them in their sleep. This is no, what have I done, there's no other way out here bollocks, 
All this is designed to give himself the maximum possible head start. And yet, with a week's head start, Austin made no attempt to flee the country and lose himself forever. Instead, he just pissed about at the seaside. Now he's had the past 20 years to consider his crimes, but earlier this year, just a couple of months ago, it was reported that with his minimum term now served, the now 51-year-old Austin was being considered for parole, something that Carol has fought long and hard to make sure doesn't happen. Over the years, she's written to MPs, attended marches and protests with Never, and has gained the support of influential campaigners such as Marie McCourt, another person who's helped Carol through a grieving process and who supports her fight for justice. For justice for Carol will be to see the monster who shattered her life behind bars for the rest of his. He should be in prison for life. My daughter and grandchildren will never have a life, so why should he? I've tried my best, but it's not going to be good enough as one day he will be out, she says. Sure enough, the parole board heard Austin's case on April 9th of this year. Documents released following the hearing claimed that in this hearing, Austin did not seek to be released, but had asked to be moved to open prison conditions. At the time of his offences, it was claimed that Austin had numerous issues suggesting that he'd re-offend when he was first committed, including financial problems, emotional outbursts, rumination and low self-worth. But, it added, he had throughout his sentence since taken part in, I quote, accredited courses to address offending behaviours, decision making, relationships, victim awareness and his use of violence, in which he had made good progress. Because he demonstrated this positive attitude towards rehabilitation, it was suggested that Austin should be moved to an open prison, where he would be given more freedoms and subject to less supervision even be able to gain employment. A plan was presented showing how Austin's release could potentially be achieved, but later the same month, it was ultimately refused by the Secretary of State as being, I quote, not robust enough to manage Mr. Austin in the community at this stage. Doesn't your heart bleed for him, eh? Although Austin will then for the time remain in high category prison conditions, the threat of him one day being released remains ever real for Carol, Harry and their son Matthew, who still campaign for Austin never to be freed. For those in support of this, a petition on change.org was created by Carol's niece, Sarah Markey, which calls for not only Austin to remain in prison, but for the very real and I know very commonplace debate that life should mean exactly that. A link to the petition is contained in the episode show notes and I will be sharing it through the show's social media links as well. Now the reasoning behind it, I hope I've made apparent through the account, but I think Carol can put what this truly means better than anyone. Just a few months ago, she told in an interview, Why should Austin be released after all he's done? I wonder if it's maybe just too expensive to keep dangerous people in prison. My husband and I met on Valentine's Day, the day he celebrates his birthday, and every Valentine's Day my first thought before anything is, I hope you have a rotten day in jail. When we heard he was sentenced, it was the day my son got engaged, and the taxi driver who arrived at the party was Austin's uncle. So even with the most joyous moments of our life, 
Austin finds a way to ruin them. In our minds, it hasn't been 20 years. This happened yesterday. This is how fresh it still is. I relive in my mind what happened that day when I discovered their bodies virtually every hour and I still get nightmares. I see the images of my poor dead daughter and the children all the time. His parole has been a sickening countdown we have endured for years. Every time the postman comes, I dread it's going to be a date for his hearing. I also worry he could kill again. If he gets out, he could remarry and have another family, and I dread to think what he might do to them too. Who would want him living next door to them? Who would want him meeting up with their mother and having the children around him? Nobody would, but the reality is, it could happen. And believe you me, it will be easier for him to kill again the second time around. My daughter and the children are buried in the churchyard near where we live. I walk my dog each morning and I cut through the yard, stand by their graves and I say a few words. I tell them I miss them and it sometimes makes me angry to think how he took them away from me. Now I have an awful dread that I will see the monster who killed my beautiful daughter and innocent grandchildren on my daily walk to the churchyard and I will see him standing by the graves. That vision frightens me. It absolutely terrifies me, the thought of him coming out. It mustn't happen, which is why I'll fight until I take my last breath to keep him inside so that he can never do this to anyone else. We may or may not be able to prevent his release and we may never have justice served, but I would ask you to sign this petition to stop multiple murderers from being released from prison and to prevent them from killing again. Let's make a stand together and make sure that life does mean life in prison. Words that can only come from someone who suffered such an unimaginable loss those are, aren't they? I had no hesitation whatsoever in adding my signature to the list, and I hope that following this episode going out, so many more are added to it as well. So a tale of true horror this time around then, isn't it? As they always seem to be when you go down the rabbit hole on these things. The familicide that Philip Austin committed that dreadful day back in July 2000 chilled my blood when I researched it. Because those actions I've described here are, are just monstrous, aren't they? They're just wicked beyond belief. I can't even think how best to describe them. And to pre-plan it all, which you can't dress up because Austin did, I mean, to do what he did to his dogs is horror enough, let alone the slaughter of his wife. But to then drive around with your children for a period of some seven to eight hours, knowing all the time that you're ultimately going to strangle them in their sleep, drugging them first to make it easier. Plenty of people have the same kind of pressures that Austin claimed he was facing, but they don't go out and commit unspeakable acts such as that, do they? And to show no remorse whatsoever for it, to be more interested in your bloody CD collection, well, there's no place in society for anyone who can commit such horror with no explanation and no sign of madness about him. I was struck deeply by every single word that I came across from Carol and Harry through researching, for these are two people who speak with so much dignity and warmth when discussing Claire, Kieran and Jade, yet you can clearly see how painful it still is for them to this day to do so, the sense of loss that they still feel, and the very real fear they have of Austin being released, something that's loomed over them ever since his sentencing. 
In the episode show notes, as I said, there are a number of articles and documentaries that I used for research purposes that feature Carol and Harry, who are quite open in speaking about Austin's crimes, seeing it for the greater good that the horror is brought home to people and may ultimately assist in keeping that key turned for him. I urge you to have a look at them, or even just read the words that they come out with in the articles in the references section, only some of which I've repeated here, and believe me, I had to cut several more out, there was that much to select from. Once you've done so, and from the account that I've just given, see if you feel, like I did, that adding a signature to their petition is somehow the least that a person can do to help give Claire's family that little reminder that they do have support and empathy. And that a monster like Austin, and this tale really should have been next series' Monsters of episode, but a monster like Austin spends the rest of his days behind bars. For if he can do that with that explanation or remorse to his family, who's to say he won't commit equal horror once again if the circumstances present themselves? What do you folks think? I would love as always hearing your thoughts on the episode Annihilator, which you can do so in the thread that's now up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or that you can do so through any of the show's social media links. You know I always love hearing from you wonderful lot, and I never mind where it is. And as I said before, I shall be sharing the change.org petition that I mentioned beforehand through the show outlets as well, as well as it being up in the Facebook discussion group, should anyone wish to sign, share, or both. With that, it's wrap-up time here now for this episode, and for a couple of weeks break for myself, as I feel like I need a bit of a palate cleanse after churning out a fair few weeks worth of horrific tales. Plus my fingers need a bit of a rest because I'm in danger of getting beetle hands. So I shall be back for Patreon 42 at the end of the month, and come the beginning of July with a regular enthusiast, it's a bang on time to begin this series arc. We've had a fair few standalone weeks now in between multi-parters, so boom, coming back with the arc. All that remains for me to say then is that I thank you for joining me here today for the episode, which I know has been a horrendous one, and that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.